Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Both of my guests on today's show about medical aid and dying has something the other doesn't. One has terminal cancer, and she's an enthusiastic proponent of getting the law passed so she can die on her own terms where she lives, here in Connecticut. This is simply saying, I've had a wonderful life, and I'd like to have a wonderful death. Curling up in a bed on drugs isn't exactly my idea of a good death. The other is a palliative and hospice care consultant who's attended over 1,500 deaths. And he has a different take on things. The refusal to undertake the realities of dying have consequences which expire early for you, the dying person, but endure ultimately for the death-phobic culture. I'm Kyone Wolf. How the way we die may reflect the way we live. That's next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Death is something I like to talk about. It's unknown, it's scary in ways, it's hard to talk about. Today's guests spend a lot of time thinking and talking about death, and their experiences have led them to different places, different ideas about the process of death and dying. Linda Bluestein of Bridgeport has terminal cancer. She's actively working to get medical aid in dying legislation passed in Connecticut. That would mean if certain criteria are met, a patient like her can request medication that'll end their life at the time of their choosing. Right now, it's only legal in 10 states, so she'd have to move to a place like Vermont to be able to make that decision about her death. You'll hear from her later in the show. First, you're going to meet Stephen Jenkinson. He's worked with over 1,500 dying people and their families over the course of his career in what he calls the death trade. He's the author of many books, including Die Wise, a manifesto for sanity and soul. He's the subject of a film called Grief Walker, documenting his work as a palliative care and hospice consultant. He has a master's degree in social work from the University of Toronto and a master's degree in theology from Harvard. Before we get to Stephen and Linda, I just want to say, usually Audacious tries to answer questions about what it's like going through uncommon or misunderstood things. Death is common, of course, but it's impossible to totally understand. You know, we can only get so close to it, right? And our relationship to how we perceive death may change based on what we've experienced and are currently experiencing ourselves. So I hope that you finish this 49-minute episode and feel like more questions were raised than answered. And maybe it's a new opportunity to think about your own death and talk with your loved ones about how you see it. Stephen Jenkinson joined us from Canada, where medical aid in dying was legalized in 2016. I asked him, what's the difference, as far as he sees it, between a bad death and a good death? You know, from the outside, they're not that distinguishable, to be honest. You'd, you'd expect a, a spectacle of sorts on the one side and some grim offspring of that spectacle on the other side. It's, it's much subtler than that, in my experience. There's subtleties galore. But the main aspect you're asking me about would be 
if you die awake, you're likely to die wise. If you die basically in any other fashion, the odds are not in your favor. So then the question becomes, what do you mean by awake? You're talking about cold turkey. I'm certainly not talking about cold turkey, okay? I'm not a fan of suffering for its own sake, certainly not. And, uh, and nor should anybody be to fetishize the idea. You know, take it as the parallel, how difficult it is for so many young women coming to pregnancy for the first time to be overwhelmed by the notion that they have to have a natural uh, childbirth. And you know what natural cuts in the direction of. It's just, it's a terrible kind of tyranny and it's not very flexible. It's not user-friendly at all. It's ideological, really. And ideologies don't have much place in the birthing bay, in my humble estimation. I'd say the same thing about dying then. So what do I mean by awake? You know, you go back to the etymology, it doesn't fail you. The word awake uh, literally has no reference to the opposite of asleep. It means this, to have been gathered into an understanding that the, the, the web of consequence that fans out behind you in terms of how you proceed and what you do and what you say and what you don't say and what you fail to say and what you're unnerved by and not everything, okay? But there's, there are kind of two fistfuls of very consequential things that constitute a lifetime. And the, the consequences that ever behind you, which is where the word wake comes, right? These things constitute the meaning let's call it the, the involuntary meaning, the part that you don't get a lot of choice over. You made your choices, and those have meanings. But the one meaning that's not available to you is meaninglessness. There is literally no such thing. So if you die, in a sense, purposefully, if you die having come to a, a, an experience of profound arrest, as a consequence of the visitation of the great God death, you, you have, stand a very good chance, but we should very much say that this has nothing to do with enjoying yourself, feeling good about it. These are not the markers of dying well or dying wise in my language for it. It's not a customer satisfaction arrangement, you see, because the thing is uncharted, isn't it? It's, I mean, I can talk for hours about this damn thing. Oh, you have. <laughs> And a threatening to do it again, clearly. <laughs> but I'm, I'm saying to you that, I mean, all of this you're, you're hearing now is a very well-intended amateur speaking. Yes, I've attended a lot of other people's deaths. And yes, I'm assuming that that's going to be, hold me in some kind of stead when it's my turn. But it won't resemble much, you see. So the idea that I, I can be forewarned and therefore forearmed is, is not the deal. There's no insurance against dying well. Dying well asks as much from you as it grants to you. My best understanding of it is that dying is a God, not like a God, not God-like, but in, I mean, as factually as I can declare that, dying is a God. I've seen the God of death in the room. Not to sound ghoulish, because it's not ghoulish at all, but it's a true thing. And it's better that you're not completely ambushed by 
his or her or their or her or whoever it is uh, presence on the scene, no? Such that you can begin to say anything rather than cower and try to head off in the other direction as desperately and as quickly as you can. Is there a gray area? Is that what we're talking about here? Because on the one hand, there's, you know, medical aid and dying. Take the stuff, you're gone. On the other side, if I understand this correctly, there is no assistance in pain relief in escorting you to your final moments, which, of course, for the majority of human existence has been the way it's gone. From your viewpoint and from what you've seen, is there a gray area? What is that gray area operationally? The answer is yes. Uh, First of all, the characterization that for most of human history, it's been cold turkey. I very much doubt that that's the case, actually. I think that there have been Bush wisdom practitioners galore who've drawn down from the pharmacopoeia around them uh, you know, when the vital times and the vital signs dictated the rest. I'm not born into such a place, really, with the ex- possible exception of aspirin, you know, and a couple of other things like this. But I, I think that's been in the mix. So I don't think it's been nasty, brutish, and short until the last 20 years. That's the first thing. And then the second thing, you know, as to the gray area, I can tell you uh, that uh, I'm a Canadian. And when I was working in the death trade, Uh, euthanasia, as it was called then, was against the law. It was a criminal activity, criminalized and indictable activity, okay? I'm telling you it happened all the time. It was what we called euphemistically amongst ourselves, passive euthanasia. Passive euthanasia generally takes the form of this. The law, at least the law in, in my country at the time, was what constitutes the illegality of the matter is the intent to short circuit the quote, naturally occurring course of a person's ending, short circuit in the direction of hastening it. On the other hand, if that's not the intention, but it is the consequence, possibly unforeseeable, or at least questionable consequence of an attempt to relieve suffering, then that would not be considered euthanasia in the criminal sense of the term. And that's the form that it took because, you know, those of us who worked officially in the death trade, I mean, I can't think of an ideologue there in all my time there who was willing to stand beside the notion that a person should properly be abandoned to their own undoing in order to rescue the rest of us from possible indictment. I never saw that occur. I'm not saying anybody was a hero. I'm just saying I never saw it. Nobody gets into that business to do that to people. I'm fairly sure. Not that I saw. However, it marks you in a certain way to get up on a Monday morning to look in your appointment book at home before you set off to your rounds and to know at two in the afternoon you're presiding over the official and clearly intended, clearly consequential death of a fellow human being. There's something about it that's, it's obviously not common, a common kind of experience. So what you're doing is you're treating somebody for symptoms of a kind of chronic and acute shortness of breath or what we call oxygen starvation. 
and you know that given where they sit and, and their own constitutional infirmities and so on, that the likelihood is that this dose compared to this dose will kill them. Nobody says the word kill in the circumstance and the person is consulted. And you can just guess what kind of profound, somber existential etiquette that's entered into between the people that involved, which hopefully is very few, you know, a couple of family members, you try to keep it so that there's no, there's not a gang of witnesses and, and, and people weighing in with opinions and all the rest who frankly don't belong in a moment like that. And that the person has, you know, we routinely did this. We asked them one more time, which is, which is a very challenging place to put someone to agree to the imminence of what's about to take place and to choose it. You see, one more time, are they choosing it freely? Of course not. You can't even absolve yourself with the allegation that it's a free, quote unquote, free choice. Why not? Because it's being chosen under duress. That's why you're not standing there in, a, in an open field with the wind blowing your hair and making the ultimate call, you know, to serve what you believe in. That's not how it shakes. How it shakes is you're in tough and you don't really know what to do. And you've flirted with the notion of what you're capable of and no longer capable of. And it doesn't look like what you thought it did when you were formulating your idea. When you get there, you're a stranger in a strange land there at the edge of your own capacity to cope. You see, so all of the language of uh, living wills and, and uh, those kinds of things, they're all written by amateurs. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying understand the limits. You're, you're imagining, you're basically fantasizing what enough already would look like, what the intolerable is constituted as. Then you get there and you think, can I negotiate? And of course, it throws everybody off the scent of the, uh, of the scheme, isn't it? And, and, and they're trying to take your, read the tea leaves of your responses and things like this, and you're still able to communicate. And it's less and less clear for all concerned how this should actually roll out. So anyway, that's a long kind of anecdotal way of telling you that things rarely look the way anybody thinks that they should. But if anybody should be in a position of being capable on behalf of the dying person, it should be the people who've been there before, just not with that person. In other words, they should be led in the most gracious sense of the term by the people paid to know about what we're talking about now. And in that sense, then, you know, I, I think the language of power, frankly, doesn't belong in the discussion, the language of who's in charge. But, you know, you've had recourse to the medical professionals up until this moment. And in a medically assisted death, you still have recourse to them. Then you need to allow the distinct possibility that the recourse includes recourse to their human concern, not just their functional expertise. Alas, there's not a lot of training that marries the two of those together for keeps in, in many practitioners. And so I'm fantasizing when I suggest that arrangement, to be honest. It wasn't that, that frequently available. That was Stephen Jenkinson, author of Die Wise, a manifesto for sanity and soul. He's worked with over 1,500 dying people and their families over the course of his career. When we get back, more from Stephen about his views on states and countries that legalize medical aid in dying. Is it doing so to challenge its own death phobia? 
because I'm submitting to you, it's the death phobia that is passing the legislation. Plus, you'll meet a woman with terminal cancer who's a proponent of medical aid and dying in Connecticut. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're talking about medical aid and dying. It's legal in 10 states, and my home state of Connecticut is not one of them. If it were up to Stephen Jenkinson, it would remain illegal. In his career as a palliative and hospice care consultant, he's been present for over 1,500 deaths. His country of Canada legalized medical aid and dying, or MAID, in 2016. And we've been talking about what effect the possible ubiquity of this legalization would have on the human species. How does he think changing the way we die would affect us culturally and in any other way? Later in the show, we'll hear from a woman who's terminally ill with cancer who wholeheartedly advocates for medical aid and dying to be legalized here in Connecticut. But let's get back to my conversation with Stephen. I guess what I really want to try to wrap my head around is how is it different for the dying person? You know, on the one hand, medical aid and dying. On the other, what? Like, what? how is it different for them? On the, up Leading up to that moment, is it? And I, I feel like we kind of keep getting trying to I keep trying to get back to that answer what is different in a wise death at leading up to that moment at that moment for that dying person versus what people are trying to get when it comes to aid and dying I take the Canadian example because I know it well so we've officially legalized the whole operation nobody lives in fear of dispatching someone prematurely, provided you're qualified by the law to do it. And it's advocates who are legion, and I'm not saying mistaken, but certainly legion. It was an easy wagon to climb onto. Why? Well, because the the PR firm working for it was very effective in being clear with us all that it was a suffering mitigation Uh, event that we were talking about here. It wasn't an ideological event. It wasn't a right to life event. It was an attempt to translate compassion, fundamental deathbed compassion. Understood. That was the attempt. Let's wonder aloud, I'll do so on your behalf, what the actual act of translation has achieved, because we're in the land of some track record now. The thing that you can't leave out of the equation is the following. Canada was a death-phobic culture prior to, to passing the legislation. Yes or no? Yes, it was. And the idea was that this death-phobic culture was embracing this strategy in order to mitigate its death phobia. That's the best possible face you can put on it. Did it do so? Well, here's what I'm here to tell you. If a death-phobic culture legalizes euthanasia, Is it doing so to challenge its own death phobia? Because I'm submitting to you, it's the death phobia that is passing the legislation. Why? Because the death phobia recognizes in the legislation a silver lining. And what's the silver lining? That the death phobia 
will not be fundamentally challenged by the legislation and the subsequent practice. Why? Because the, the legislation and the subsequent practice is consistent with the death phobia while appearing to call it into temporary disrepute. And how does it do so? It leaves the fundamental uneasiness or phobia around dying utterly intact. It doesn't wonder about it. It doesn't recalibrate it in the least. It said, look, dying is inherently suffering inducing. Dying is inherently traumatizing. Is it really? It really is. You don't really want to find out because you've got no recourse, do you? I'm telling you, that's what it is. This is me characterizing the, the language, yeah? So you don't want to find out the hard way. No. You'd like your options, wouldn't you? You've had options your whole life. Wouldn't you like them then? Yes, you would. Understood. Okay. Uh, is dying inherently death phobic, though? Do you really want to find out? Is there any way of finding out you know, without getting to the finish line and the booby prize? The answer is, yeah. Pay attention to all the other deaths that have occurred in your life before yours. And ask yourself the question about them. And, and the lessons that you drew, that you walked away from the deathbed having learned. And one of the principal ones was, whatever you do, don't die, wasn't it? But if you can't avoid it, then avoid it. Which is double speak for what? You cannot have to die. You can opt for being killed instead. I know them's fighting words. I know it's divisive language to use. But I didn't invent the distinction, see? And, and here's why I think it's a useful one. It goes back to the question of grammar. Because in the English language, the verb to die cannot be used in the passive voice in a sentence and be grammatically correct. This is a stunning thing to observe. English-speaking people cannot talk about dying in the passive sense of the term and use the verb to die to do so. They have to use, you guessed it, euphemisms which is why there's so many of them. You see, the language is telling us that dying is not what happens to you. Dying, that's what you do. But if dying is what you do, then immediately it's transformed its fundamental nature from something that's going to occur no matter what to something that you have to undertake for it to occur. And if you don't undertake it, if you fail to undertake it, if you refuse to do so, if you have no tuition, cultural or otherwise, that helps you understanding these matters, the distinct possibility, as science fictive as it sounds, is that you will not die. You will expire, of course. Your vital signs will cease. But the whole person event called dying, you will have failed to undertake, usually by a consequence of omission or ignorance on the whole matter, yeah? And this is, is a recipe for the very death phobic culture that I've been characterizing from, from the outset, yeah? So now we've got a circumstance that, that seems to promise that we can short circuit the death phobia by having better outcomes. But these outcomes include a refusal to die. This is very tough to put into words now because of how hard it is on the extreme end of the experience. But I'll risk it and the risk sounding like a beast by saying so. 
that the refusal to undertake the realities of dying have consequences which expire early for you, the dying person, but endure ultimately for the death phobic culture. So you, if you die as a cultural person, as I've said at the beginning, and that all your fashions and manners of dying are culturally derived, which I believe that they are, then you begin, I think, to come to the inescapable conclusion, avoidable but inescapable, that your dying is something you owe as a consequence of your citizenship, as your consequence of your appearance on the scene, as a consequence of not having died yet. You, you owe to the people around you your death. How so? Well, it's, it's, it's everybody else's PhD, isn't it? That's what it's for. That's how you learn these things. You don't learn them at home. You don't learn them from listening to some guy talking about them. I mean, you sort of can, but, but you can argue with it till the cows come home. But I promise you, it's very hard to argue with a death in the saddle when you're there. It doesn't even belong. You should be submitting yourself to the tuition that's there and not contending with it, yeah? So when the lesson that you leave in your wake, literally in your wake, is that uh, dying's not worth it, that it should be yours to dispose of as you see fit, you've turned dying into another experience of personal expression, you know, another opportunity for you to uh, be at the steering wheel. And there's no sense of submission, and there's no sense of the great God death. None of all the mythic and poetic overlay is dispensed with, and we're down to the realm of personal rights and freedoms, allegedly. So just so I make sure that I have this right, and I, I apologize because it must be frustrating to have someone attempt to narrow down something so vast and complex as dying, but it sounds like what you're saying is for those who want medical aid in dying for themselves, that on a grand scale warps the cultural closeness and desire to understand and be with death as it is in its natural state? Am I close? You've been close all along. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's so proper that people understand that you and I are doing our best with a language that's slippery on the matter, right? Because what we're trying to do is approach with a high degree of veneration, an altar of human experience that's, man, it's a tough scene, right? And we only get so close to it until we can't report back. Until you're it. Yeah, exactly. And so it, it's proper to sound tangential and off the mark and, 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 you know, trying to warm to the subject and back towards it and, you know, so on. It, all that stuff belongs. Yes, you are close to it. I mean, it's not the right way to say it. I mean, we're, we're as close as we can afford to be in our relative health, Right. My upside, if you will, maybe one of the reasons you got in touch with me is I've been in other places too, though. I've been not just in the place of thinking about my death ad nauseum, you know. I've been in the circumstance that's beyond thinking. 
that's beyond opinion and ridicule and, and rancor. I've been at the deathbed. I've got no reason to misrepresent to you what I've seen. I have no vested interest in it being worse than it, than it actually is. None at all. Right. And I've taken all the rough stuff out in, in my answers to you. All the stuff that would be so monstrous to obliterate any nuance or subtlety in the arrangement. And I've tried to maintain the subtleties and what I'm, you know, the feeling I'm trying to give you about it all and say, you know, I don't think the people who are opting for made are in any way monstrous or despicable. Of course not. Or, or morally de deficient in some fashion. Of course not. I mean, it's hard. Okay. It's not easy to be a human being. You know, we don't get a lot of good training in it. We get a lot of warning shots across the bow about it. I mean, it's, it's not a great thing to go with. And then suddenly you're on your own, baby. And like, you're now you're calling the shots. <laughs> like it wasn't your, your life the whole way through. And now it's supposed to be your death too. And now you like, you've got the papers to prove that you've got the chops and you've, you've read the, the owner's manual on how to do this. And none of this stuff is true. So you have recourse to what? To your intolerances principally, and to the belief that you have a right not to suffer. And then you live in a country as I do, that says, you're right, you do have the right not to suffer. Right then, starting when? When, when is my freedom from suffering supposed to kick in? The 11th hour is awful late in the day to learn the subtleties and the limits of that kind of right. How do you want to die? <laughs> what makes you think I want to die? <laughs> I'm, rather, I'm rather pleased with the, the general situation, to be honest. I wasn't, it wasn't always true, but I can tell you that one of, the, one of the occupational hazards of working in the death trade is the distinct possibility of falling in love with being alive. It's very counterintuitive on the surface, but it happened to me. And... Um, for that reason, it's not going to be the most obvious thing to, for me to say. Now, what did I say in page 427 of that book I wrote? Let's, re let's have recourse to that stuff today. I'll just read from the tome and I'll get it straight all over again. That's not, you know that's not what's going to happen. So I've had very well-intended people message me from hither and yon saying, listen, I just had a dream about you and God wants me to send you this message. Okay, great. What's that? First of all, I'm thinking God used the internet, but okay, what, what's up? Well, God wants you to film your dying and broadcast it as a live stream in real time. Probably not going to happen. I mean, nobody needs to deal with that, right? No, least of all me. So, you know, I hope I resemble uh, the best part of what I was able to come up with in talking with you today. Do I want to be caught unawares? Do I want to be panicked and, and, uh, and treading water, you know, pretending I'm swimming? Uh, no. But how do you, I mean, it's asking an awful lot to ask somebody to want to die. And so I don't really feel an obligation to have that around me, you know. I'm, I've entertained the prospect. I've heard the, the audio, the likely audio of the thing. I've, I've been close a time or two. I don't know what that's going to mean, how much it's going to make available to me at the time. Um, I hope I, I can be 
communicative until the point where I, I'm spent. I mean, that w- it'd be nice that it goes that way if it goes that way. But ultimately, you know, submission's the order of the day. Well, Stephen Jenkinson, thank you for talking with me. Do you know, it was a real moment for me. And uh, I liked your persistence and that you didn't take yes for an answer. We'll have a link to more of Stephen's work at ctpublic.org slash audacious. Linda Bluestein of Bridgeport, Connecticut, has good reason to have given medical aid in dying a lot of thought. Back in 2018, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. She had a double mastectomy, and then later she was diagnosed with malignant melanoma. And then in 2021, she found out that she has late-stage ovarian cancer. I asked her what initially made her consider medical aid in dying for herself. Neither of my parents had deaths at the end where they were together with us and where we had all come to terms with the good and the bad and the wonderful and the odd moments of what it meant to be a family, what it meant to be in relationship with one another. And so I sat down after I realized that I. I had a pretty ominous future ahead of me and I made a list of 10 things about what would be a a good death for me. And it's called my death plan. And every day I get up and I read this list. It's a little book on my desk. And I, all I do is glance at it to see if I've done everything that I want to do. I'd love to hear a few of them. At the top of the list is forgive everyone. I don't want to carry around anything with me that in the end matters not at all. So I, I thought, yeah, I haven't forgiven so-and-so. They probably don't even know I'm carrying this, but I'm going to do that. And then, of course, what everyone tells you as you get older is get your affairs and orders, you know, wills, trust, financial stuff. Well, you know, that's pretty ordinary, and I'm good on that part of it. And then number three is plan a good death. It's going to be at home. It's going to be with my dog, with my husband, with my kids, maybe my grandchildren. I don't want death to be a mystery to them because it's everybody's end. This isn't a secret, something that we should be ashamed of. It's something we should celebrate as as much as a birth. And we plan for births and we plan for weddings and we plan for all these other things. But how about planning for our final exit? And so. I had some things in mind for my good death and where it's going to take place. And I'd like it to take place at my beautiful home here in St. Mary's by the sea. But if I have to move to Vermont to access medical aid in dying, that's going to mean a big, you know, seismic shift in my plans. But I also, I prioritized the no's and the yeses. Well, how am I going to spend my time? You know what? I'm not going to, you know, that potluck, I'm not doing that again. I also put in my death plan, educate me on my medical options because oncologists and everybody starts throwing a lot of stuff at you as you get these serious and ominous diagnoses. And it's not easy to be a fully engaged participant at the table. Sometimes I felt like I wasn't even invited to the table. And I said, I am going to just educate the hell out of myself to understand what options there are. And when something's offered to me, 
okay, what's the upside and what's the downside? And how does that fit in with my plans for my last days? You don't get to decide. I don't care what your degrees are. And then my 10th item on my good death list is just carpe diem. Every day that I have, if I'm feeling strong and I have energy, you know, get up, you know, get dressed, put on makeup. You know, I have hair now. I didn't have hair for so long. And, and, and do things that bring me satisfaction or a sense of completion or a sense of agency because my cancers aren't giving me a lot of agency over many aspects of life. But certainly taking steps to make sure that at the very end, I don't have to suffer and have my family members suffer. My cancers already cause seismic shifts in the people who love me. They have to realize, you know, mom, grandma, wife, not gonna be here as long as we had hoped or expected she would. I wanna make that as light on their hearts as possible when the cancer comes back and when the suffering is too great. How will you know when the suffering is too great? I guess I don't know. Isn't that one of the mysteries? One of the great mysteries? In states where medical aid and dying is legal, most people who access the the cocktail for ending their lives end up never taking advantage of it. So if all I can do is wake up in the morning and dread another day, or I've had the privilege of being a friend to a woman I met in a cancer support group at uh, the Norma Frame Cancer Center three years ago, who, um, as she said, took flight on February 2nd of this year when she, by herself, moved to Vermont, leaving her husband back in Fairfield, drove to Vermont, registered her car there, got a place to live, established residency, registered to vote, had all of her medical records sent, had to find new doctors, new hospice care, be admitted to hospice. And she wrote me every day. She wrote me on the days before she had decided to go to Vermont to access Act 39. And she said, Linda, um, I'm going to keep you in the loop because I'm going to go through this and I'm going to leave you a trail of breadcrumbs so you'll know how hard it was. And it was very hard. To do also while being sick. While in her third year of suffering from lung cancer with no energy left. So Kathy had to leave her home and do all of these things. And she wrote me every day. She said, well, I had to find a witness today to attest to the fact that they weren't related to me, didn't know me, but I seemed to be sound of mind and know what I was doing and they weren't going to benefit from my will. And she said, and then people in Vermont didn't want to sign it. They were afraid, you know, oh, somebody's going to find me. So she finally found a random person in a coffee shop who would sign her, it'd be a witness. And then she went to a bookstore and she walked into the bookstore and broke down in tears because she was so tired and so frustrated. And the bookstore owner just put her arms around and said, what's the matter? She said, would you be my witness? And they sat down and talked. So that was her second witness, but this was not easy. 
And then she had to find a place to live, somebody to take care of her. And she had to find that only one pharmacy in all of Vermont compounds and dispenses these drugs. So she said, Linda, this ain't easy, so start early. And I took that seriously. And and I was so happy when she wrote me in the morning of February 2nd. She said, hey, girlfriend, I'm taking flight this morning. My family's here, my son, my daughter, my husband. Uh, Bill's been taking care of her. This is a man that she had moved into his home. He was a a hospice nurse. And so she said, um, goodbye. So I saw what a good death was. And I went to Kathy's memorial service, as many people did in Fairfield at the Pinville Pavilion, and heard her son and her daughter, both adults, and her husband talk about how beautiful it was and how wonderful it was to see Kathy just say, I'm going to go to sleep and I'm not going to wake up and that's all I wanted. So when I get to the point where the suffering is so great that I say to my husband or I say to someone who's near me, I just don't want to wake up again. Please let me go to sleep and not wake up. That's the time when I will access those medications to make sure that happens. That was Bridgeport resident Linda Bluestein. After the break. Societal consequences? What kind of value system is so crazy that we're saying you owe society more hours of suffering? What is the state of Connecticut going to gain or lose by the hours that I have chosen to remove because it was the right time for me? I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're talking about how we die and to what degree we should be able to make decisions about our own death. Several states have medical aid and dying laws that allow people who are terminally ill to request medication that'll end their life at the time of their choosing. Linda Bluestein has late-stage ovarian cancer. She's a vocal and enthusiastic proponent of getting this legislation passed so she can have the choice to end her life here where she lives in Connecticut, instead of moving to New Jersey or Vermont or Maine, the closest places where medical aid and dying is legal. A quick note, in this part of our conversation, Linda brings up her view of the difference between someone who wants medical aid in dying and someone who's suicidal. So I'd like to take the opportunity to remind you that the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7, and the number is 800-273-8255. I asked Linda, what does she say to people who suggest, you know what, palliative care, hospice care, it's working just fine the way it is now? I'm in palliative care now. They treat my symptoms, but that's not the same as living how I want to live until I can no longer find that on that those scales of, is this worth it? Is being curled up and sleeping all day? I may not be in pain moaning, but I don't find relief of pain to be the only factor in a good death. But why should anybody else have a say on me? You know, they can't tell me anything else about the, about how I live in the privacy of my home, except that I cannot, when I've decided I've had enough and I've done everything I want to do, end 
my life. Palliative care does not make everyone comfortable, by the way. It's, it's in all cases. Uh, if, if you think that it's possible to make people absolutely comfortable, that's just plain a lie. This is agency. This is my agency over my body and what I choose. It may not be for you. And if it's not, you don't have to do this. This is simply saying, I've had a wonderful life and I'd like to have a wonderful death. I know it's coming. And when it comes, I want to be there fully present to welcome that and say, I have finished and I'm happy with where I am. I'm not intended to live to be 110, you know, and I wouldn't want to anyhow. A long life isn't a good life to me. A life where I can look like Linda and still think like Linda and and enjoy food and enjoy, you know, watching movies and enjoy my walks and enjoy my animals and my friends. Those are the important things to me that make life worth living. Curling up in a bed on drugs isn't exactly my idea of a good death. I'm curious to know what you think about the idea of what medical aid in dying may do to the human species on a grand scale. Of course, we have no idea if this becomes something that more and more people do, when you take the pain out of this human experience on that grand scale, what avoiding that kind of suffering will, will do to us? You know what I mean? Like what, in what ways that may change us culturally in that broader context? What do you think when I put that to you? I think it's wacko bananas. If, if people want to suffer, you know, go for it. If I don't choose that as my path, what there is it to you? And what societal consequences? Dead is dead, folks. You know, if it comes after a long period of suffering, is that better? What kind of value system is so crazy that we're saying you owe society more hours of suffering? Is it seven hours? Would that be enough? Or does it have to be 24 hours? Or maybe maybe a whole week of suffering would be good for society? When I die, if I die, as I wish, here in my home, who's going to be affected by this? What is the state of Connecticut going to gain or lose, dying anyhow, by the hours that I have chosen to remove because it was the right time for me? And I will be the only one to know. My husband can't say, here, take your, you know, take this cocktail. It's my choice. If I wanted to end my life, and I don't, let's, let's make a real clear distinction that I think is most important. This is not suicide. This isn't physician-assisted suicide, which I hate, a term that I despise. If I wanted to end my life, I could buy a gun tomorrow. Right? No, no, this afternoon. I'll just It is the United States, yeah. Yeah. It is the United States. I could probably find one. I could I could uh, find a high bridge to jump off. I could crash my car. I could like stuff up my tailpipe and go in the garage. There are a number of ways that I could commit suicide. People who commit suicide don't want to go on living. 
I have a lot to live for. And I want to live it fully until I'm no longer able to participate in it. When my agency has been removed because of my cancer, then that's on me to make that decision. I don't want this for everybody. I want access to everyone for those who choose to have this as an option in the same way that I choose to keep a bottle of morphine in my safe here at home that was prescribed for me when I had my big surgery. I didn't need it at the time, but I said, when I need that, it's a comfort to know I have pain relief. Am I going to drink it tomorrow? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know, but it's a comfort. And so is medical aid in dying. Having the full range of care that physicians can offer, and that includes extending my life, operating on me, giving me drugs. It also includes allowing me to say, when I've had enough, I can go to sleep and not wake up. When that's the frequent request of people who are ending their life suffering from things like, you know, chronic obstructive, you know, pulmonary disease and lung cancer and things like that. My friend Kathy was drowning every day. And when her children at first kind of challenged her about wanting medical aid and dying, she said, why do you want me to keep living like this? It's like being held underwater every day. When it gets to that point for me, why should I live another day? It's a moral question of doing the right thing by those who love me and by loving myself. That's the moral issue. Well, Linda Bluestein, thank you so much for talking with me. Kayone, thank you also for inviting me to your program. Audacious is produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Subscribe to Audacious wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen at ctpublic.org slash audacious. Please send me your thoughts. I'm on the socials at Kion Wolf, or you can send me an email at audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.